Hello everyone, it's September 21st, 2021. So Inspiration 4 has returned, all went well. In other good news, Perseverance has persevered. It overcame that uncooperative Martian regolith and got a few samples in the can, or vial, or whatever. So a good week for spaceflight. Let's discuss it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 326 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Inspiration 4. Uh, it is splashed down safely yesterday. I did not get to watch that live, but I did watch the launch, which was mm. really something. We've watched quite a few of these, but because it's just, you know, civilians, I felt extra, I don't know, just uh, it was a little bit more, not tense, I don't know if that's the right word, but just, you know, more heightened in terms mm-hmm. of my emotional response to a rocket launch. So it was pretty amazing. Um, I don't know if you guys watched it, but it kind of got me reinvigorated for people in space again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could say genuinely, it's genuinely cheesy for me to say this, but I, I honestly, once they seemed like they were flying at Pastor Max Q. They were on their way. Once they were on their way to orbit, everything was safe. I, I genuinely felt inspired. You know what I mean? Like I did yeah. feel that little sense of like, you know, I got a little gushy. Yeah, I, I didn't watch the entire Netflix series, but I, when they played the Zoom footage of the uh, the lottery winner getting uh, informed that he uh, had won, like he just looks totally shocked and like, how do I process <laughs> this? And I I know for sure if that happened to me, I would be so built up. Like I I would be trying really hard to not get my hopes up uh, and getting them up anyway. <laughs> that like when they actually said it, I know I would be crying. Like it, that would just it would be overwhelming. Um, I can mm-hmm. imagine. So the launch went well, and their time on orbit went smoothly. I don't know as much about what they did. Of, I mean, they did do some experiments, and they spent, according to one person, they spent a lot of time looking at that big copula or cupola or cupola, whatever it's called. I can never <laughs> remember how to say that word. But uh, I don't blame them because it's such a great view. I can't say I would do any different. And um, yeah. and I read uh, that Elon Musk, uh, he donated $50 million to this, which brings up the total that has been raised for St. Jude's to $210 million. Uh, mm. So that's pretty cool because I didn't know how much money was actually raised. And I'm still not clear as to how the raising the money, I guess, just the I think billionaire I know. pays for most of it. Okay. I think, yeah. So I, my understanding was the $200 million was the target. And Jared Isaacman, the, the commander and financier of the mission, he uh, was going to put up $100 million of his own and then trying to auction that fourth seat uh, to Chris Sembrowski, the one you uh, had talked about earlier, Ben. He um, that, that auction was supposed to raise the other $100 million. And I remember uh, back then uh, that they fell short, I guess. And so maybe with the numbers that you said, maybe they only raised something like sixty million with the auction, and then mm-hmm. Elon put up fifty million of his own to top it off, uh, to put it over that two hundred million mark that they wanted, and get to two ten. You said, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe that's that might not be the exact breakdown, but it's roughly like that, somewhere in that ballpark. Which I think, yeah, is a good idea. Like you know, we talk about space tourism. And this is a good use of it because it's, I mean, I don't know if you can consider, I mean, I guess it is tourism, but with a hefty price tag, but at least it's going to charity. So it's a great way to give back and get something too. Yeah, Isaacman, he seemed like he he was very careful when he designed, you know, this mission to try to essentially not do, not subject himself to at least as obvious a criticism as you could (laughs) lodge towards Branson and Bezos. Yeah. Um, he was a lot more thoughtful and careful about how he arranged the mission and everything. I think the fact that he is not Elon Musk uh, does 90% of that work for him. Yeah, yeah. But I, I agree with you. And coming up to the launch, there was people, we'd seen some talk in our Discord about whether or not 
people were getting as jazzed and excited about this outside of outside of being space geeks. And I think once the launch came and went, that was true. I didn't really see social media or non-space geek people really really blowing up about this the way that they did with the 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 Virgin Galactic and the uh, the new Shepard. I wonder why that is. Is it just that it's already become passe? They're just a little bit bored of tourists in space or whatever, or billionaires in space. I don't well, know. No, nobody knows who Isaacman is, and I guess know. that's the biggest reason. Yeah. Also, fair point. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so that means the media didn't pick it up nearly as much as it did those other ones where you just had such an obvious title that you could give your news articles, you know, mm -hmm. it's very right. clear, you know, billionaires going to space. And it said this was more of a proper mission. It wasn't as quick and dirty and required more attention, I guess. It mm. required paying more attention to it than it did to just watch a, a quick little YouTube clip of Branson or Bezos going up and down. In a matter of minutes. <laughs> it's probably also just because it's not, there's not that competitive aspect to it. So, because mm -hmm. people like that, yeah, there is, there is that, like, just like, you know, having billionaires in a, you know, space race slash pissing contest <laughs> right, <laughs> that, right. that makes headlines. Yeah. And I, I have to imagine that while they did some nice live streams while they were on orbit, that we're going to see a lot of good footage in the final episode of the Netflix series. So keep an eye out for that if you have that. I think September 30th is when they'll be releasing it. So the first Perseverance sample collection. So Perseverance does have samples now, right? So because we discussed how they were having problems with that. I guess we still don't know exactly what the initial or what those first problems were. They have a decent idea. It, it was a little tricky and... Because right, what you're alluding to is their first attempt. Everything performed on the sample acquisition mechanism, whatever it's called. Everything performed correctly, but they did not actually end up getting a quartz sample. And they looked inside and couldn't find it in there. And they looked around to see if maybe it fell on the ground. And so they speculated that since everything worked smoothly, that it was an issue with the rock itself. And we, we had speculated, or rather passed along the speculations uh, a month or so ago, I think is when this took place. And so they moved to another rock that they thought might be better. Uh, it was a similar type of basaltic rock, but it uh, evidently from what they could sense by looking at it remotely is that it had less exposure to water than the, the first rock, which was called a Rubion, all these French names. The second rock, Rochette, that we did talk about briefly uh, a week or two ago, uh, they not only took a sample, but they actually took two because they're doing this sort of pairing for redundancy where they'll take twice as many samples and not drop them all in the same location. So that way, if something happens with the fetch rover or the Perseverance itself, they'll have backups, essentially a backup site to go and grab your samples later on as part of Mars sample return. And so, yeah, these two uh, samples from Rochette were Montdenier and Montagnac. So the sample was good. The next step uh, for the whole Mars sample return overall mission is, uh, you know, sending the a lander, a fetch rover, having an ascent stage going up into orbit. I didn't realize how involved uh, ESA was. ESA is actually developing the rover and the orbiter. Hopefully in 2026, they'll start to launch. Uh, it's a bit like SLS. No one quite believes that yeah. timeline is going to be met. Right. So late later this decade, essentially. Uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that it's only a few years after 2026, something like 2028 or so. I can't wait for that rover. That's going to be a, a like it's a utility rover, right? Not a, not a science rover. 
Yes. And like, we've never had, we've never sent a rover with such a close ended mission. You know, it's always been very open ended. What are we going to find? Let's, let's bang on that rock. Let's drill into this rock. <laughs> go, go do yeah. science. Yay. <laughs> and like to have this very distinct mission of go pick up samples, put them in a rocket and send it home. That That's very cool. That is neat. They're, they're usually platforms. This is like an instrument with wheels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do your one yeah. thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure it's going to do a lot of other things. You know, why waste uh, a, a set of wheels on Mars? But like, and it's going to be cool because like Mars rovers don't tend to double back on their track. And so we're going to get to go revisit all of these sites, you know, following pretty much in, uh, in Perseverance's, not footsteps, wheel ruts, like following those <laughs> tracks um, not exactly, but like pretty, pretty close and getting to reobserve things after a couple of years and getting to see them from different angles. Like that's going to be some really interesting science to like science planning. Like how, what we got to go to this site and we got to go there relatively fast, but what are we going to do along the way? What route are we going to take? What are we going to reimage? Cause yeah, Perseverance is actually ultimately doubling back to its landing site which a, uh, is the oh, Octavia is E. Butler landing site. Yeah. But I'm sure it's taking, you know, a circuitous route there. Yeah. And so it won't be able to, you know, it won't be revisiting itself in the way that you're talking about. And especially that letting a bunch of years pass. And so you see how weathering happens to rover tracks on the Martian surface. That's really neat. Yeah, why why are they why are they going to return to the launch site or to the landing site? I don't know. Maybe is that where they plan on dropping them off? I mean, if it was a good enough location for the TRN to say, hey, let's land here. So maybe it's a good enough location for a lander with a fetch rover on board to land eight years from now and scoop up. Yeah, my impression was that they were going to try to keep the dropped samples with some distance between each one. But like that, that's not invalid, not impossible if you go back and drop them near the landing site, you just make sure that you drive a little bit before you drop each one. Yeah. I don't know. Oh man, this is so, this is so cool. You got to love Mars. So there's, there's a page on uh, JPL's website. Yeah. It's uh, mars.nasa.gov. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's the, where is the Rover page? And what's really fun is for perseverance when you, well, when you load the page, it starts out with, a solar system diagram because that's <laughs> apparently they didn't remove uh um didn't remove that mission phase's worth of data um but then it it finishes loading the script and it zooms into the martian surface and what's really cool is you know you've got this nice um track of the rover and uh each of the the locations that it kind of hung out at for a little bit. But what's really cool to me is that there is an ingenuity marker on the map as well. Mm -hmm. I wish that they had ingenuity's track that it had followed, but <laughs> it's really cool to see ingenuity, like, like two parts of a mission separate on the surface doing their thing. Yeah, and you could see that they're on opposite sides of a ridge. Mm -hmm. So it might've been that, I don't know, it, it, it's easy to misinterpret elevation. But I don't know if Ingenuity's chilling on top of the ridge while Perseverance is doing its its business. Mm -hmm. 
um, below or vice versa. I also found a, a link for uh, surface, surface operations generally, and they do allude to in the baseline plan, Perseverance places one or more large groups of samples in strategic locations. They have uh, 40-some to work with. Yeah, it's called the depot caching strategy, where it'll go out and get samples and bring them all back to a single depot, not, not exactly the landing site. It looks like it won't return to the depot until its extended mission. It looks like it'll set the depot at the end of its primary mission and then go do additional work. So when they leave them, how do they leave them? Just the tubes themselves? Yeah, just the tube, and they just wow. drop it on the ground. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so the sample vial, which is evidently the size of like a proper test tube on Earth, mm-hmm. then goes into what I just would think of as a pneumatic tube looking thing. Yeah. You remember those, and so, yeah. And then that evidently is what gets dropped or or i don't know if they drop the test tube directly it seems that it's that's what's hermetically sealed and so maybe what i was interpreting because when you look at the belly it looks like they put them into a larger tube but that just might be where it stays in the belly you know and then you just drop a raw little test tube at the bottom because they are titanium and they have the coating for thermal reflections and whatnot and so or thermal management and so yeah actually take back what I say about the pneumatic tube. I'm sure that they just dropped the actual sampling tubes right on the surface. Yeah, so that is where the status of Perseverance and the samples are. It's doing a wonderful job. That's great news that it wasn't that the first sampling issue, uh, the first sampling failure was related to the rock and not the what's likely the most complex machine, <laughs> you know, the most complex instrument uh, off-world. So things will probably slow down for a bit uh, because Mars conjunction is coming soon, and so it'll be dipping behind the sun, which makes radio communications impossible, and thus we will kind of take a break from Mars. Uh, and by we, I mean all of humanity, even, you know, China and ESA, anyone that has any assets on Mars, will be taking a break for a period of time until it dips back around the other side of the sun. you know how, how long that'll be? There's, right, there's kind of like a zone of avoidance, and I think... Yeah, I think it's probably going to be a month or two, okay. but I think it also depends on who it is. So China, for example, stopped sooner, or, you know, stopped communicating with Zhurong, uh first, you know, and and I think uh, NASA and ESA are pushing it a little further before they they're going to take their break. Okay, let's move on to short and sweet. As usual, just three this week. And what's the first one, Ben? All right, Shenzhou 12 crew returns to Earth. After a three-month stay on the Tianhe Space Station module, Taikonauts Nye Haisheng, Liu Boming, and Tang Hongbo safely touched down in their designated landing zone in Inner Mongolia. Days earlier, the three had entered their Shenzhou 12 spacecraft and separated from the Tiangong space station to perform a circumnavigation of the station and a radial rendezvous test. The latter was designed to demonstrate an approach to a different docking port that will be used by future missions. The next crew mission to the station is set for launch next month and is expected to last up to six months, breaking the endurance record just set by the Shenzhou 12 crew. Next up, Van de Haye to remain on I. ISS. With the announcement of a mission extension, astronaut Mark Vandehey is now on the way to set a new record for the longest American spaceflight. The six-month extension will affect both Vandehey and cosmonaut Peter Dubrov and was granted in order to arrange for the arrival of a film crew to the station. In October, rather than a replacement crew being launched on Soyuz MS-19, Roscosmos will instead send a film crew consisting of a director and actor along with a cosmonaut. 
Van de Hey, a veteran of Expeditions 53-54, is expected to spend 353 days in space, beating Scott Kelly's 340-day stay for longest American duration on orbit. All right, and then finally, NASA awards five companies for lunar lander studies. NASA has awarded a total of $146 million to five companies to study future lunar landing concepts. This award, called Appendix N, is intended to further sustainable human landing systems on the moon after Artemis III. Three of these companies make up the national team that competed for HLS Blue Origin, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman. Both Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin confirmed that they will continue to work as part of the Blue Origin-led team, but will also investigate other options. Dynetics and SpaceX were also awarded a share of the funds, with SpaceX receiving the smallest amount at $9.4 million. Okay, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. So we got four winners, two tweets, an email, and a DM. We have Bill Boabob, Chepard Okozi, Delta Via 4.3, and The Greek. So uh, the clue was, you are on fire. You are on fire. And I still just, I don't know what that's about, but Ben, uh, you'll have to explain the <laughs> oh, clue. It's clever. I had no idea until I saw some of the correct answers, and it was a good <laughs> clue, Ben. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this week in spaceflight history is the 24th of September, 2011. You burns up on re-entry. I couldn't have been more literal, folks. Um, <laughs> and uh, I really appreciated um, the Greek's email uh, guess. He said, uh, uh, you guys are tricky. Uh, you, smelled, you spelled it, you are on fire. <laughs> like, okay, all right, got it. Because, <laughs> you know, if, if you uh, miss a clue, you can always look at the show notes because it's, it's spelled out in there. So initially, we just read it on air and that allowed us to allow for some ambiguity and now like we actually have to decide how we're gonna spell it because people are gonna be able to read it um so um i I just went super literal like i i don't know what the problem is okay so uh urs is a satellite uh the name stands for upper atmosphere research satellite it was deployed by discovery on sts 48 on the 15th of september 1991 that was the Deployment date, I believe Discovery launched on the 12th. Uh, URs had a three-year primary mission, and that was extended uh, multiple times, and it wound up operating for 14 years. Uh, by the end of those 14 years, six out of its 10 instruments were still operational. Uh, the Greek also cited uh, some dimensions, uh, comparing it to the size of a bus. And yeah, the, this thing is huge. Uh, it's 10.7 meters by 4.5 meters or 35 feet by 15 feet. URs was uh, designed to study the ozone layer. Obviously, whenever you have a mission doing one thing, it's also doing a couple of other things. Um, I, I didn't count, but uh, like eight out of the 10 instruments were all focused on ozone and uh, ozone decay, like not decay products, I mean, they, they did detect carbon monoxide, which I believe is one of the decayed products that often crops up once you break it down into oxygen and free radical. Um, but like, you know, they're, they're looking at, at, um, competitive molecules and all these different kind of things that affect the ozone layer. Like I said, there, there are 10 instruments and, um, two of them really stood out to me. Um, one is called clays. The cryogenic limb array etalon spectrometer. Dennis, do you, have you ever heard the word etalon before? Is that? I think it's I, I think it's etalon. 
Edelon? Yeah. Is that is that a, a particle, the name of a particle or something? Oh, I know. I, I've heard it in the context of what's called a Fabry-Perot interferometer. And, it, and in that case, you basically have two plates and you tune the separation of the plates to pick out certain frequencies. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm guess, that's what an Edelon is. Yeah, I, I did a quick Google and you're absolutely right. So um, I, I really want to leave cryogenic limb just like hanging there. But cryogenic is the type of instrument because, you know, it's uh, an, an infrared spectrometer, so it's got to be cold. And then limb is referring to the limb of the Earth. Um, it's basically the horizon, but seen from a distance. It's the, it's the edge of the planet. It's a terminator that is twilight and it's the limb that's the horizon. Okay, so uh, Clay's is this uh, infrared spectrometer. So it's there uh, to um, quantify the density of nitrogen, uh, chlorine compound, uh, nitrogen compounds, chlorine compounds, ozone, water vapor, uh, and methane. It has uh, really high resolution and high sensitivity um, so that they can actually pick out these spectrometers the spectra lines pick pick them out from the background infrared radiation um and so what's really cool is like this thing is is basically just a telescope that points into the atmosphere which which i kind of love um you know we have a lot of telescopes that look down at earth but you know when you think of a spectrometer the first thing i think of is not a telescope so like not not only is this thing like a telescope but you know it's an infrared telescope so it has to be cooled and what's really neat is Normally, you cool uh, infrared telescopes with liquid hydrogen or or liquid helium. It you know really depends on what um, what you're looking at. But in this case, this thing was cooled with solid carbon dioxide, aka dry ice from the gas station, and it was also cooled with solid neon. Have you guys ever heard of anything being cooled with solid neon? I have not, <laughs> and I am. Absolutely looking for images now. Great. Yeah, thank you. I will continue on. Please jump back in when you found some. So like any other vehicle that is cooled, um, it, it ran out of its its coolant materials, um, but they, they lasted a good long time. So the vehicle was uh, deployed in September of 1991, and the coolants lasted until May of 1993. Now they, they planned for a year and a half mission at a year and seven months, I believe. And so as we're getting to the end of the coolant, I'm sure that the telescope is becoming less and less useful. But, you know, for real, they didn't actually run out of it in, until May. All of this is to say they use solid neon on this vehicle. Like that, that's cool. <laughs> okay. And then the other instrument that really grabbed my eye is called ISAMS, the improved stratospheric and mesospheric sounder. Now, this is also uh, an infrared uh, instrument, but it's a radiometer instead of a spectrometer. And it uses this really cool technology called pressure modulation. Um, pressure modulation uh, lets you do uh, radiometry even if there's something in the way. Like, they actually use uh, pressure modulated radiometers to identify gases in a porous solid, so either a powder or, you know, a sponge-like material. It doesn't matter that there is uh, matter in the way, like uh, like a literal solid in the way. You can still do science on the gas that is filling those pores. And it works in a, in a really clever way. So you've got, you know, the optic path where you 
you're, you're passing electrons from the subject material through whatever lenses or whatever, and then into a detector. And between the detector and the sample is a pressurized chamber that the light flows through. And so with these, these gas chambers, you can change the pressure in the chamber. And, um, so they, they actually modulate the, the pressure so that it, it's going up and down continuously. And what's really cool about that is that when you get this, you know, this emission spectra, like a bunch of lines telling you where you have different portions of the spe of the light spectrum, uh, entering your instrument, most of those lines are background noise. And by varying the pressure in the gas chamber, you actually cause your target line to wobble up and down to get brighter and dimmer. And when you, when you do that pressure variation, it doesn't affect all of the background noise. So by paying attention to what the pressure is in the gas chamber and correlating that to the change in the spectrum line that you're actually interested in, you can subtract out all of the background noise. And like, I don't understand exactly how this works, but it seems fairly reasonable. And one of those things where it's like, oh, duh, we should have done that long ago. Um, and, and I think this is such a cool instrument for a mechanism to use, uh, or su such a cool mechanism for an instrument to use. Yeah. If, if, if it's, if it's what I understand, just going back to like my basic astronomy knowledge is that lines can be pressure broadened among other things. Oh, and it's I just said if you have a higher pressure you're going to have essentially more of the uh the atoms or molecules in the gas uh, moving at higher velocities and thus the the wings of the line will become broadened uh, relative to uh what they would be otherwise and somehow that that helps you pick out the signal from the noise like i would think that that would just be well characterized noise on top of your signal but but apparently it isn't. Well, and and, and sorry, and I, re and I realized the, the change in the velocities because because they're because the impacts between them. If it's a higher pressure, you're gonna sure. get more of these yeah. impacts happening. But maybe are you are you saying then that you have, let's say you had ten lines, <laughs> and all of them have basically a consistent width to them, but one has a width that's fluctuating. It's getting a little broader line yeah. and then a little narrow line and so on. And yeah. that's how you're like, ah, that's the one we want. Yeah, and and not only that, but it's because like, oh yeah, you. Like, if you know uh, what frequency you're looking for, like, you don't really need to do this. But from what I understand, it wasn't just that they could use a worse detector, right? Like, it, it's actually varying the the input from the target uh, molecule in, in some helpful way. You know, it's it's physics and instrumentation, and neither one is my forte, so. All right. No, that's um, so cool, though. Thank you for including this instrument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was really cool. So um, ISAMS uh, was measuring thermal emissions um, along a column of atmosphere. And it was looking at uh, everything from the tropopause down to the mesopause. Um, and, of course, this is also looking out at the limb of the Earth. Um, there were seven gas chambers. Um, there were two chambers with CO2 in it. It was also looking at carbon monoxide, methane, nitrous oxide, um, nitrogen dioxide, and water. Um, and for some reason, the two um, carbon dioxide cells um, could also allow you to measure uh, ozone, 
uh, nitric acid, HNO3, and dinitrogen pentoxide. And then the, the other thing that I really liked about this instrument is, you know, it's infrared, so it has to be cooled, but instead of having expendable coolant, uh, they actually used a Stirling cycle engine to pump the heat away from the instrument. And like every time I read something about a Stirling cycle engine, all I can think of is one of the model Stirling cycle engines on top of a cup of hot water, um, pumping up and down and, and spinning something or doing something pretty. Uh, I, I really like Stirling cycle. There were a bunch of other instruments, um, one of them I just want to mention because of the name. So this uh, was a Doppler shift instrument uh, that they used to determine horizontal wind speed. And the instrument was called Windy, uh, W-I-N-D-I-I. Pretty sure they pronounced it Windy and not Windy Eye. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, uh, the Windy instrument. Um, they also had a, a, another instrument that would measure um, wind speed by taking two different interferometry measurements, one looking directly left and then one looking left and slightly back, like at 45 degrees. Um, so you could, you know, measure the same area of atmosphere twice at two different, uh, two different times. And then they also had um, some solar observatory kind of experiments. Okay, so so that's the science. The vehicle was pacified in December of 2005. Um, before they shut the vehicle down, they did an orbit-lowering burn. They they brought it down to 518 by 381 kilometers. Um, 518 is not lower than the ISS. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, the ISS actually did an avoidance maneuver um, specifically because of URs, uh, back in 2011. Oh, sorry, 2010. So NASA, you know, as this thing is, is slowly lowering its altitude and getting closer and closer to, to burning up, the question is always like, where is it going to burn up? And in this case, it's, it's a answer that would have been nicer to know more exactly. Um, NASA expected that the bus and most of the vehicle was going to burn up. But their simulations uh, found 26 components that were expected to survive. And of these surviving components, they expected uh, 532 kilograms to make it down to the surface of the Earth. That's uh, um, uh, 1,170 pounds. Um, the lower density components uh, would have slowed down faster in the atmosphere. Um, and uh, we don't have any direct measurements, but the simulations indicate that they probably impacted the surface um, no faster than 44 meters per second. Uh, that's 140 feet per second. However, the uh, highest speeds that they simulated for some of the denser components was up to 107 meters per second or 350 feet per second. And you really don't want to get conked on the head by either of these guys, but come on, like that's, that's really fast. There was a lot of news coverage, um, you know, going, oh, no, NASA's, NASA's going to kill us all. Where's it coming down? Um, it ended up coming down in the best place possible uh, in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but it, it was like um, startlingly close to American Samoa. Luckily, it was on this northeast trajectory. So it landed beyond uh, American Samoa. They called it downrange of American Samoa. And then like that was the beginning of the landing ellipse. And then, um, like the, the, the ellipse of 
of components, you know, matter impact in the ocean spread out beyond that, right? And so, uh, kind of this this area of impact uh, is estimated. Um, to be 300 to 800 miles away from American Samoa. That's 480 to 1300 kilometers. Um, you know, it's, it's an appreciably large area and it's really good that it didn't hit anything important. Just water. Um, no, no damage, uh, was ever attributed to this. And yeah, there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. Uh, and you know, remember you are on fire. You're doing great. <laughs> Such a simple, obvious clue. Now that you've explained that. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best way to do it, right? Yeah. So it's like, what's the best way to hide in plain sight? That's kind of what that clue is. <laughs> All right. So for our next clue. So the date range is the 20th of September through the 4th of October. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2001, a first from the last frontier. Mm, okay. I keep going to that well, <laughs> comparing this to my last uh, clue that I came up with, uh, the beginning of the end and the end of the salvaging or so, the end of the yeah, beginning yeah. and the beginning of the salvaging. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to break that cadence eventually, but okay. for now, this is the best I could come up with. All right. Well, I'm not sure what that's in reference to, but good clue. And if anyone out there thinks that they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, just three of those. So that fits. Well, first up, we have a free virtual conference and so okay. this is this is from September 21st to the 23rd so if you're listening to the show you might be uh, missing some of the first day of the conference but it is free and virtual and it is NIAC which is the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts and so if you are familiar with it you know why it would be really cool and if you are unfamiliar with it uh, this is the really cutting edge wild stuff so sending CubeSats to Uranus kilometer scale space structures from a single launch uh, Titan sample return the absolute cutting edge type stuff is going to be there and so uh, feel free to check it out we'll have a link to NIAC's site and you can register for free. After that, on September 23rd, we have an Atlas V, and that is launching Landsat 9. So this is another Landsat, an Earth observation satellite uh, for NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey. And uh, this will be launching on an Atlas V in the 401 configuration. And apparently it was delayed from September 16th by a liquid oxygen shortage. So that shortage is, you know, really mm -hmm. affecting some launch providers. And uh, it'll be launching from Space Launch Complex 3E from Vandenberg Space Force Base. And that launch time is at 1811 UTC. So an instantaneous launch window for what uh, I assume, yeah, is a polar launch in a sun-synchronous orbit. It probably said that somewhere, but I didn't actually read it, but I'm going to guess. Mm -hmm. And finally... Uh, on the 28th of September, which is Tuesday, so the day that our next episode comes out, um, Soyuz MS-18 is going to be moving from the ROSVET module to the NAUCA module, which, you know, it's going to be kind of interesting because NAUCA is not fully integrated yet. Like, it, you know, it's like six months or something like that to, to finish the integration work. So, you know, they're kind of moving a little bit farther away from the campsite, which is kind of fun. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're just doing the move to make way for uh, MS-19 with the film crew. Um, so again, that's on Tuesday, September 28th. Um, the undocking is scheduled at 8.21 a.m. Eastern Time. The redocking is scheduled at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And coverage looks like it's going to be beginning on NASA TV uh, at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. 
All right. Well, there you go. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to today's live in the chat listeners, Colin and Mike. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Uh, thanks this week to Jean-Paul McBrady for leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Podcasts. You can also visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information about this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. And we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.